In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have some actually political things to talk about, <laughs> not just like complaining about how terrible Trump is. In fact, today we're not really going to be talking much about Trump. No. Um, it's going to be mainly focused on interesting political philosophy and, um, and actually uh, political analysis. So we're going to be talking about Joe Biden's administration picks, specifically uh, the people that he's going to have in his cabinet. Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about gay conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. uh, and then we're going to finish up by having an interesting little philosophical discussion about cancel culture. So I don't know about you, Michael, but I'm excited about this week. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this episode. Um, so to kick us off, yeah. as usual, I will uh, start off with the COVID numbers. So Yay! Yeah, <laughs> we always start on such a low point, so we can, you know, we can, we can know, know where to go but up. Um, unfortunately, that seems true of COVID numbers as well. But um, uh, so in the world uh, overall, uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe you can cut that. <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna cut that. <laughs> <laughs> so worldwide, uh, sixty point four million people have contracted COVID which is 3.9 million new cases since our last episode, or a 6.9% increase in total cases in one week. Uh, so far in the world, 1.42 million people have died from COVID, up from 1.35 million last week, which is an increase of 5.2% in total deaths. In the US, 13 million people have now gotten COVID, up from 11.8 million last week which is a 1.2 million case increase over last week. So 1.2 million cases since you last heard from us, which is a 9.2% increase in total cases. So again, faster than the world overall. Um, and that's as we're kind of heading into the holidays with a bunch of experts worried that as we head indoors in winter and visit with our families, which can be a pretty common source for community transmission. Um, cases could spread even more rapidly. Mm. Um, this week, uh, a total of 266,000 Americans have died from COVID, which is up from 256,000 last week, which is a 3.9% increase in total deaths, or about 10,000 more deaths this week than when we recorded last week, mm. which is on top of an increase of 9,000 deaths in one week from the week before. So oh. basically, since our last episode, 1.4 thousand people have died per day. And to put that into perspective, um, cancer, which is the second leading cause of death in the US, kills about 1.6 thousand people per day. So a 200 person difference per day. 
Well, you know what they say, Michael. There's no place like home for the holidays, so uh, stay home. Yeah. (laughs) I like that. That's good advice. Yeah. If you want to see your extended family in 2021, then uh, maybe, you know, meet them on Zoom this year. Yeah. Yeah, this is the year for delayed gratification, I think. Um, But imagine, imagine how great Thanksgiving and Christmas 2021 is going to be when you can actually get together with people, fingers crossed. But the good news is our president is on the job. Last week, while the G20 was getting together, having a a breakout session on the international response and preparedness to COVID, Trump was, of course, golfing rather than attending this G20, like G20 summit meeting with international leaders on COVID preparation and response. I mean, that's progress. At least he's not holding a huge rally in the White House that becomes a super spreader event. At least he's not a bullet point on the PowerPoint at that conversation where they're like, how do we get this person to stop spreading COVID? I mean, again, progress. Yes. You know, I think it is credit where credit is is due. It is progress. At least he wasn't gumming up the meeting or intentionally or, uh, you know. Or licking the doorknobs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a pretty big milestone. That's It was the 298th time that he's gone golfing since his presidency, which puts that at about one to two trips per week since he started. <laughs> you know, I remember when Fox News used to criticize Obama for mm. how much golfing he did when he actually golfed less than, than Bush. Mm-hmm. And I remember when Trump while he was campaigning, he would be like, I'm not going to have time to golf. I'm going to be too busy making America great again. <laughs> and then he's golfed more times than like any other president yeah. in recent American history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. But I don't want to criticize Trump for golfing actually, because had he spent more time pursuing his policy agenda, we would be way worse off. So that is please, true. that is true. Keep golfing, so, Mr. President. So the incompetence yes. is uh, is is a feature, not yeah. a. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Which not was the whole thing about people being like not wanting to, like, remove Trump and put Pence in office, right? Like they were worried that he would actually be more effective somehow <laughs> than, than Trump. Yeah, fair point. But these are not conversations we're going to have to have again after. The, no, we after don't. The we year, we said so. we weren't. We oh, said we weren't are, going to talk right, about sorry, Trump. That was the only we're, thing. We're talking about thing. Trump. <laughs> All right. Except no, for maybe we, our asset. We might talk about him then. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because the big the big thing that we want to talk about today, mm. and this in many ways is prompted from the fact that um, Trump has finally conceded. Wait, did okay, he, he concede? Okay, he didn't concede, but, <laughs> but he did start the transition. Yeah. Like he go, did go ahead and order the transition, which yeah. I thought was... It was kind of funny because the GSA secretary, Emily Murphy, like put out a tweet basically saying, oh, I've been getting all these you know, horrific criticisms from the media uh, because of how I've been delaying this. I've just been waiting until we know the results of the election. You know, I have I have not been instructed by Trump during any part of this. And then like right after that, Trump puts out a tweet saying I've instructed her to begin the transition. It's like, oh. So what she said was a lie. You did instruct her. To... <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, she's trying to weasel her way out of it in the most um, intellectually dishonest way possible. But the important thing is the transition is starting. Uh, he sees the writing on the wall. Um, he's not going to be president. He knows it. And 
Now we can spend some time focusing on the next president. Specifically, we want to spend some time focusing on the cabinet picks because Mm -hmm. with the exception of John Kerry, uh, none of the cabinet picks are people that I have seen in reality TV. Wow, that's a that's a really big step forward. Yeah, yeah. I, I or any TV really like the the only the only one that was really a big name that is a household name was John Kerry, and I was like, and and of course th- and of course Abe Lincoln, right? Abe Lincoln, yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe Biden picked Abe Lincoln <laughs> to be oh, his man. Secretary of State. Oh, he really brilliant. Is. He really is senile and old, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Who is the president? <laughs> Sir, you can't name a, a former dead president for your secretary of state. <laughs> anyway, anyway, <laughs> enough with that. Um, yeah, this is this is an exciting thing. We're going to have grown-ups in, in the White House. And Im- importantly also, none of these people have actively worked against the interests of the organizations that they will now be running which is like yeah. just a huge step forward. <laughs> yeah, really it's a bunch of academics and just yeah, and qualified people, people. Yeah, people with history in um, working in these types of positions in uh, the federal government and, you know, people that might actually have experience on the job. This is really exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, so like one thing that is important to, to make very clear is that most of these people, in fact, so far, all the people that I've seen so far have not been hugely progressive picks. Yeah. And, I mean, that's to be that's to be expected. Joe Biden is not a progressive person. Yeah. Uh, he was never going to pick a bunch of super progressive people yeah. to be in his cabinet. But the important thing is we're at the point where we can actually have political conversations with these people, about these people. We can actually have logic-based discussions about the actions of these people because it's not just a bunch of sycophantic Trump-worshipping crazies. Yeah. It's people that are actually trying to do the job. Yeah. And maybe they won't do the job in exactly the ways that we want them to, and we will hold them accountable for that. Mm -hmm. We will spend the next four years criticizing them when we think they fall short. But in the meantime, this is really a breath of fresh air yeah. To see people that are actually willing to do the job, that are yeah. running agencies. Capable that, of doing the job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, capable of doing the job, running agencies that they actually respect the mission of. Yeah. I mean, the last four years has basically been, I mean, we hired a bunch of vegans to work at a butcher shop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're just slowly substituting soy products for all the meat. And by the time <laughs> the new, yeah, they run out of meat by the time, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, no it, offense, Michael. <laughs> I'm not a vegan for the people listening. I, true, true. I am, yeah, I'm yeah. a pescatarian, but uh, we don't have to get yeah. into that. But yeah, the um, I'm yeah, I'm really encouraged by these picks because your point. Not only can they do the job, and not only are they willing to do the job and and are like open to reasoned argument, um, they also like the policies that they actually do want to pursue. The the perspectives that they actually do hold are good so kind of like what we talked about for the past couple weeks like yes um there are some republican allies out there in defeating trump but their policies are not the kind that we would pursue um, as progressives or as democrats for these folks like 
the the perspectives that they have are the are the kind of thing that support the mission of the Democratic Party. So just really excited about these about these people. Okay, so as we uh, mentioned before, um, the Secretary of State pick is Anthony Blinken. Um, and basically the secretary also known as a Blinken, also known as a Blinken. Yeah. Who uh, he actually has a, I think he has a band called a Blinken. Um, yeah, I, I, I heard, I heard that he had like a band on Spotify that he had a, yeah. he has like a playlist on Spotify. Uh, That's another thing. That's another thing. This group of people, at least some of them are not totally stuffed up old yeah. fogies. Like there's some actually like pretty cool folks here. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, God, the first time, the first time I heard Anthony Blinken's name, I, I became uh, Blinken from Robin Hood Men in Tights, the scene where Achu is like, hey, Blinken. And he's like, did you just say I Blinken? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anytime, anytime our politics echo a Mel Brooks movie, we know we're heading in the right direction. <laughs> Um, so, so basically yeah. the responsibilities of the secretary of state are to be America's lead diplomat. He's yeah. like our presence on the world stage. That position is currently held by Mike Pompeo, who notoriously despises the rest of the world. Um, and so it'll be a very refreshing change of pace to have someone like a Blinken in office, Anthony Blinken in office. <laughs> um, so Blinken is a longtime um, Biden confidant. He's been in um, Congress and in other official capacities in our federal government for a very long time. During the Obama, Obama administration, he served as the Deputy National Security Advisor um, and the Deputy Secretary of State from 2015 to 2017. Since the start of Biden's presidential campaign, um, he's been working as the Managing Director of um, the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. Um, he spent early in his career a six-year term in the Senate as one of Biden's top aides um, and one of his closest advisors on like diplomatic issues. Um, he was the Democratic Staff Director for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, when Biden was the senior Democrat on the committee in 1997. Um, and He's, he's well-known in national security circles. He's well-respected. Um, he has a reputation as being um, pragmatic and realistic um, and a very strong believer in um, foreign policy that supports our allies and develops um, policies together in using these long-standing multilateral institutions like the UN. In his role as the uh, Deputy Secretary of State under Obama. He advocated for more involvement in Syria and supported um, an armed intervention in Libya. And so, as you might pick up from those pieces, as well as his support for, um, you know, Biden when he was in support of the U.S. invasion in Iraq in 2003, while he is, like, very into these multilateral institutions, he's also a rel has, has, like, a relatively interventionist philosophy on um diplomacy and foreign relations so which is bad yeah that's <laughs> bad that's <laughs> i mean w one can argue over what role the united states military can and should play as the world's largest military um in the world and like how uh 
how to transition to a world where we aren't the police and whether that's desirable or not. But things like invading Iraq, um, you know, putting boots on the ground in, in places that haven't welcomed us and haven't attacked us. Um, yeah, that's, that's not exactly what we'd push for. That's yeah. That's not something that I personally can forgive. Again, he is very clearly qualified for the job. He does seem to, um, garner respect from a lot of the international community. Um, but it's kind of hard for me to look past that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, in the past he has made criticisms of the methods that we used in Iraq, mm-hmm. but not the actual decision to go into Iraq. Yeah. Uh, which in retrospect which I is think, just so obvious. Yeah, it's just it's so obvious. He was a part of the administration that orchestrated the Iran deal. Mm-hmm. So that is that is something to give a lot of credit for. That's yeah. something that really did give us a step towards uh, a more peaceful world within uh, the Middle East. Um, another thing that some progressives have been criticizing for him for is that he is against the movement to uh, to boycott Israel in order to protest the uh, treatment of Palestinians. But again, overall, he he's a person with flaws that we can address yeah. and that we can have conversations about and we can have criticisms of. He's not just some crazy dude that hates the world or, yes. you know, he's not just some uh, CEO or former CEO of an, an oil company yeah, with ties to Russia, like Rex yeah. Tillerson was. And Rex Tillerson was the better Secretary of State. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. Yeah, the, uh, this might be like the lowest bar in Secretary of State history, but the fact that he said, quote, put simply, the world is safer for the American people when we have friends, partners, and allies. Yeah. The fact that he said that is such a big boy statement compared to what we've been dealing with for the past yeah. four years. Welcome to the welcome back, uh, Abe Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I don't think we can spend quite this amount of time talking about all of the cabinet picks. Sure. Otherwise, we'll be here all day. But let's go ahead and move on to uh, let's say uh, Treasury Secretary Janet yeah. Yellen. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about her. Uh, um, I know, yes. I knew you would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, yeah, it's a position I I have been in recently. <laughs> more passionate about over the past couple of years. Um, so again, as we, I think we talked about in episode two or three, um, the treasury department is an executive agency responsible for promoting economic prosperity and ensuring financial security in the United States. Um, they cover a bunch of stuff, but one of their most important jobs is controlling monetary policy, which is the balance of flow of cash and credit and inflation in the economy. So they are they hold the reins that keep our economy burning at a steady and uh, consistent rate. And one of their main jobs is also to uh, quell the boom and bust cycle of our economy. Yellen is eminently qualified for the, for this position, which I'm so excited to say. Um, So she's an American economist. She was a Federal Reserve governor under both the Clintons and the Obama administration. Um, She was the first female chair of the Fed, serving from 2014 to 2018. Um, And and once she's confirmed, she'll be the first female secretary of the Treasury. Um, 
Under her term as chair of the Fed, she lowered unemployment. Um, there were records high, record highs in the stock market and low inflation. And she's done some really interesting work in, in her research in understanding our economy. Because while, you know, while the Fed controls monetary policy and inflation, they're also one of their main jobs is also controlling unemployment. And so as a, um, a Keynesian economist, one of her big focuses is, is she's less of a hawk on inflation and more interested in trying to make sure that we have low unemployment um, and, and so that people are working and, and getting adequate wages. Um, and as part of like her research in this in this topic of employment, she uh, was she oversaw the landmark study in the 1990s under the Clinton administration, which identified the gender pay gap. So that's huge. Like she's the one when you reference um, like that women make 70 cents on the dollar compared to men. She's the one that drove that study. So huge win for um, huge win for women having having uh, a female representative at the at the head of the treasury um, a huge win for our economy i think i'm so excited to have her in place of steve mnuchin mnuchin who is uh, just basically a banker <laughs> yeah you don't have to pronounce his name right Screw that guy. <laughs> he's almost out yeah <laughs> don't remember him anymore yeah up next there's uh alejandro Mayorkas, uh, who is pegged to be the Secretary of Homeland Security. Yeah. And one of the big endorsements for him that really meant something to me was the endorsement of uh, former presidential candidate Julian Castro. Mm. Um, I definitely did have some disagreements with Julian Castro over the course of his career, but I would say that in the presidential race, in the presidential primary, he probably had the strongest platform on immigration, mm -hmm. which I highly respected him for. And that's a huge part of Homeland Security. So right now, the Department of Homeland Security is in desperate need of an overhaul because of this hawkish and psychopathic yeah. approach to immigration. Yeah. And Julian Castro actually, uh, in speaking about um, uh, Mayorkas, actually said, quote, that his nomination was a historic and experienced choice to lead an agency in desperate need of reform. Mm -hmm. So for me, that that endorsement definitely does come a long way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited about him as well. Um, to be clear, the Secretary of Homeland Security is a huge job that the Home Department of Homeland Security has 230,000 employees, 22 um, component institutions, including Customs and Border Control. Um, and so having a competent person in this role is not only critical to our, like the, our national security, like the literal safety of Americans, but also um, given the way that the institution has been, has been used and kind of contorted to focus on uh, kind of the more domestic side um, specifically regarding immigration, it's going to be have it's going to be great to have someone in place who has. Um, I mean, there's there's no there's no uh, who has a perspective that is um, far to the left compared to the people that have been running that the that that uh, organization so far. 
Uh, he was also the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security uh, for three years under Obama, and he was also the Director of uh, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services under Obama mm-hmm. for a little bit. Um, now, there's definitely been some criticisms of the Obama administration's handling of, Im- handling of immigration. Yeah. Uh, it is true that the Obama administration did deport more immigrants than the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it is important to also look at those specific numbers, to look at who was actually being deported in the Obama administration versus the Trump administration. In the Obama administration, there was actually a heavier emphasis on deporting people that actually committed crimes, mm-hmm. which is a lot more arguable and a lot more defensible. Yeah. Uh, under Trump, it's just been like, you know, you come here, you brown, you go back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so definitely a big step up. Yeah, absolutely. And he actually has experience... Um, as deputy secretary of the of the Department of Homeland Security under Obama, um, overseeing things like crisis and disease outbreaks. Yay! Someone with experience with diseases—that's awesome. He was the yeah he he so so that's great. Um, and he's been he's been praised by current and and formal DHS uh, officials um, who've worked with him, saying that he's familiar with the department, capable of handling it. Um, and getting it like backed up, back up to the standards that we would we would expect and hold it to. So huge improvement over the the five you know directors of homeland security that we've had under the the Trump administration. All right, up next, let's look at um, the U.S. ambassador to the uh, United Nations pick. Uh, this is uh, Linda Thomas Greenfield. So she was actually the U.S. ambassador uh, to. Uh, Liberia under George W. Bush and Obama. So she definitely does have ambassadorial experience. Um, She's formerly the Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs under both the Obama administration and the Trump administration. So one of the holdovers from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. Um, you know, she, she just has a nice long career of foreign service um, under both Democrats and Republicans. It, she's someone who can do the job, mm-hmm. and she's someone that the uh, the international community knows. It's amazing so, how, how far those things can go, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, up next, uh, John Kerry. Uh, yes, back, so, back again. <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's definitely a lot to say about John Kerry. I don't want to go too much into it because I feel like a lot of the things to say about John Kerry are things that people already know, mm. but... You know, he was uh, he was a presidential candidate that lost the 2004 election against George W. Bush. Um, And he served as the secretary of state under Obama from 2013 to 2017. Uh, He oh, by the way, he's the special presidential envoy for climate. Mm -hmm. I forgot to mention that he's going to be basically the climate czar uh, of the of the Biden administration. So a few things to think about for John Kerry. He was actually on the uh the unity commission for climate uh alongside alexandria ocasio cortez after biden won the primary Mm -hmm. so you know he definitely has received some influence in that and and he does have a fairly good track record uh on fighting for climate now he's definitely not a green new deal fight, the green new deal fighter that we want him to be. But again, we're coming out of an administration that just, 
the, the, the thought that climate change was a, a hoax created yeah. by the Chinese. Yeah. So the fact that there even is a climate czar is is a huge step up. Mm-hmm. Like he might not be as progressive as we want him to be, but he will get progress done. Yeah. Um, and of course, one of the things that I'll always remember him for is the Iran deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that doesn't have as much to do with his position uh, for climate other than the fact that he's good at negotiating uh, on an international stage, which is essential when it comes to the climate. Um, but yeah, that's just something that I want to throw in there because that was a huge deal. Yeah, and, huge accomplishment. You know, uh, and yeah, not yeah. much more to say about him. It's awesome. So next, I want to talk about Avril Haines, uh, who is his pick for the director of national intelligence. So this office is it heads up the U.S. intelligence community, uh, community which is comprised of seventeen agencies, um, which basically oversee all of the uh, intelligence-based operations and information that that go on in the U.S. Um, <clears throat> so Haynes served as the Deputy, Deputy National Security Advisor under Obama. Um, she was the first female Deputy Director of the CIA. Um, she was also a Deputy Counsel for National Security Affairs in the White House uh, Counsel's Office under the Obama administration. Um, and she would be the first woman to head uh, the head up the intelligence community, which is awesome. Um, and can I just say, she seems like a dope person. <laughs> she seems like really cool. Like she, after graduating from high school, she skipped across the Pacific to go to Japan to study judo at this elite, like Tokyo judo institution. Then she went to not? university of <laughs> Chicago um, another elite institution and studied theoretical physics, which is crazy, while attending UChicago. Um, she worked rebuilding car engines in a mechanic shop in Chicago, which is so badass. Um, before graduating, she, she was taking flying lessons, which is where she uh, ended up meeting her eventual husband. Um, then, together, they went and purchased a bar in Baltimore turned it into this independent bookstore and cafe, which won a number of awards and hosted these literary readings, including like these erotica nights where they just read erotica, which I think is so badass. Um, and then she went to uh, Georgetown University Law School, graduated in 2001, and just nine years later, nine years into her law degree or in, into uh, you know her law career, uh, she was appointed to to the White House Counsel as a deputy assistant to the president and deputy counsel to the president for national security affairs. So I'd just like to point out she's the second youngest person on this list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's what fifty one. She's fifty one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just want to like that is a cool person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I mean, yeah. Not only is she qualified, she's. I mean, she hosted erotica nights. I know. That's awesome. awesome. (laughs) I mean, it has nothing to do with national intelligence, but it's still awesome. She's cool. Yeah. She, she, I mean, maybe it does. Who graduates from high school and goes and studies judo in Japan? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, actually, you know, maybe, I mean, you don't know what type of, you know, funky stuff other, uh, other countries are into. No, you're, you know, you're right. You're right. Like, (laughs) I mean, you can really you can really learn a lot about a culture by understanding their erotica. Yes, so I mean, absolutely. Yeah. 
<laughs> I wouldn't, you know, bring that up across the negotiating table, perhaps. <laughs> well, I mean, if you both read the same erotica, I'd say that's a jumping off point. There you go. You know, that's an icebreaker. <laughs> More like a getting off point. Just kidding. <laughs> you got that. <laughs> I might not. Cool. <laughs> Um, uh, and again, that's in contrast to a contrast to a totally crappy pick on the on the Trump side, um, who's like, who not only undermines the intelligence community at every opportunity. His apparent only qualification is that he criticizes the intelligence community for doing things like uh, investigating the president and not charging Hillary Clinton with with crimes that they found that she yeah uh, didn't meet the bar for for. For charging um and yeah he has like no experience at all and somehow he he got into this position because he was enough of a of a trump acolyte to to get his attention so happy to have him go and to have avril haynes in his position yeah and the final person uh that i want to briefly talk about is uh jake sullivan he's the pick for the national security advisor um, he was the national security advisor to Joe Biden while Joe Biden was vice president, as well as a deputy chief of staff to Hillary Clinton um, back when she was secretary of state under the Obama administration. Um, and after his time in the White House, he, you know, he decided to go teach at Yale Law. Nice. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> he's he's an academic um, and he's an experienced advisor. Mm. I mean, which I think really does emphasize a common theme on this list, yeah. which is the fact that a lot of these people are academics or people that, uh, like people that have worked yeah. on these issues within their organizations yeah. for a long time. They're actual or experts. Or a mix of both. Yeah. Like these are actual experts and, they might not all be as progressive as we want them to be. And again, we need to be ready to hold them accountable when they fall short. Yeah. The way that, the way that we always should, we shouldn't expect less from them just because, you know, they're the, they're the, uh, their predecessors are fucking insane. Exactly. <laughs> so now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments. Tips for good. So, Nathan, why do we do tips for good every week? Well, Michael, we do tips for good every week because some folks are born made to wear the flag. Mm. Oh, the red, white, and blue. Mm. Oh. oh, and because uh, it makes the world a better place. Oh, gotcha. So less about the flag thing than more about... Well, I mean, no, the, definitely the flag thing. <laughs> you know... It's not not about I, I, the flag. <laughs> it's not not about the flag thing. But, like, it's also about making the world a better place thing. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Which is the point of this whole show. Absolutely. Make the flag a better thing and the world a better thing in the process. Yes. Yes. There we go. There we go. Perspectrum in a nutshell. So, Michael, <laughs> what is our tip for good this week? So, our tip for good this week is inspired by um, the election officials in Michigan. Um, yep. And the tip is... Let's stop calling people heroes for doing their jobs when their jobs aren't hard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, 
you know, it is important to caveat, like there are some jobs yeah. like, you know, especially uh, healthcare workers and such. Yeah. They're heroic um, jobs. They're heroic jobs. And like, it, it's, it's okay to give people praise and, yeah. you know, to thank them for their service. Especially um, when they go above and beyond. Like that's, that's especially the heroism when they go part. Above and beyond. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, but <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with like praising people in the military or whatnot. Absolutely. But if you are some, if you're a certifier of an election yeah. and you certify it to the person who won the election, you're not a fucking hero. Yeah. You're just like, not. like the fact that I, when Michigan voted to, when the Michigan certifiers voted to certify the election, many of which, you know, specifically the Republicans that voted that way. When they did that, there was this, like, media, you know, praise party mm-hmm. of, oh, they stood up against their party. They stood up against Trump. They are these gallant heroes. Oh, this was a huge defeat for Donald Trump. <laughs> Which I it was. was like, yeah, are you huge kidding defeat. me? Definitely. It was a defeat for Donald Trump in the way that, like, Every other state. (laughs) Exactly. He lost. He lost. The fact that any of them were even considering not doing their job. Yeah. Means that they shouldn't have that job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The fact that there was any thought in their mind of, I mean, I could completely betray democracy. Yeah. Or I could not. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like, like, I don't know. Like healthcare workers are heroes, right? Like nurses are heroes, but deciding not to, to euthanize someone with morphine is not a heroic decision. <laughs> it's the basic baseline of what yeah. you have to do. Yeah. Like, the thing is, that's like, that is lower than the bare minimum. Yeah. Like, it is lower yeah. than the bare minimum. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. every single person... <laughs> Bankers are heroes for not committing fraud all the time. <laughs> so every single person, and, and this goes for every, every other state... In the United States, anybody who is supposed to certify an election where there's no evidence of fraud or voting irregularities, who considered even for a second trying to steal it, Mm -hmm. should immediately lose their job. Absolutely. So let's stop giving people cookies because they're able to touch their toes while still bending their knees. <laughs> I, have, I have to bend my knees these days. It's sad. <laughs> and that's tips for good. So our next segment is not lighthearted. It is no, it's not. a very serious and, frankly, like very upsetting segment so just a fair warning we're going to be talking about conversion therapy um we're not going to be talking about it in like necessarily a bunch of graphic detail um but if you feel like if you've experienced that it can be a really psychologically traumatic experience so if if you have gone through this feel free to skip this segment um it is it, it could be hard to hard to hear about so yeah, and there's there are estimates that approximately seven hundred thousand um, LGBTQ people have been put through yeah. uh, gay conversion therapy. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's, I mean, it's terrible. It's, it's horrible. So the reason why this is prompted 
um, is because recently a uh, federal appeals court, uh, this happened last Friday, declared that there were these two local laws in South Florida that banned therapists from performing um, sexual orientation or gender identity conversion therapy on children. Yeah. Now, the decision was a two-to-three decision. Uh, the judges that ruled in favor of it being unconstitutional, um, the, the the practice of it, not it itself, yeah. uh, the were both it. Trump appointees. Yeah. And their argument was that it violates freedom of speech. Yeah. Like, telling therapists that they're not allowed to use conversion therapy against youths yeah. is a violation of free speech. Yeah. Which is total nonsense. And, yeah. and, and we'll get into some of the reasons why that's true. But it's also a really worrying trend that I've seen, which yeah. is like any time um, a like group of, of activist judges get a case that's presented to them as being somehow tangentially related to the Constitution, they call it unconstitutional. If it, if it has any restriction, even slightly related to the Constitution, because therapists like speak as their job, all of a sudden, all their speech is constitutionally protected, protected, and and totally unlimited. Uh, yeah, it's it's really a weird, weird result. But again, not too surprising coming from um, two appointees who are who are largely named from the Federalist Society, which is a conservative activist. Uh, uh, society that pushes these activist originalist just, just judges. Yeah. So so let me let me put it a let me put it a different way real quick, and I'll and then we'll kind of relate this to to why this specific analogy is apt. Yeah. So if there was a therapist who their entire their entire approach was every time a person came to a came to them for help they encouraged the person to commit suicide yeah like everybody would be like yeah that should be illegal you, yeah you you can't do can't that do you're that. a therapist yeah you you're like it's not that you can't say argue. those things as a pe as a person you can't it's not that you can't stand on the sidewalk but as a therapist you can't legally do that it is wantonly irresponsible and dangerous especially to children yeah so you might hear that and think well nathan that's an extreme example like, why are you bringing up suicide? Well, the reason why I'm bringing up suicide is because there have actually been multiple studies yeah. about, like, the rate of which people in the LGBT community either do self-harm yeah. or even consider committing suicide or even attempt to commit suicide. Yeah. Huma Manushi, who is the Equality Improvement Manager um, at the Mental Health Charity Mind, um, reports that based on studies... 52% of young LGBT people uh, have reported self-harm either recently or in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's compared to only 25% of heterosexual or non-trans young people. 44% yeah. of young LGBT people have considered suicide compared to only 26% of heterosexual and non-trans young people. Mm -hmm. And she specifically ties that to 
aspects of conversion therapy. Now, not all of them have encountered conversion therapy, but the principle of conversion therapy is there is something wrong with you. Yes. And the thing is, when it comes to conversion therapy, it just doesn't work. Yes. There's never been any evidence that it's worked. Every single study, like even a study in, in 1969, mm -hmm. before anybody was even thinking about the idea of treating, you know, gay people like humans, um, that found that those subjected to the therapy experienced anxiety, depression, impotence, relationship dysfunction, and of course, suicidal ideation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, another study that I found from the San Francisco State University, um, it compared, so the key part of conversion therapy is a rejection of someone's current sexual orientation um, being homosexual or transgender or anything uh, or gender identity, things like that. Um, and, and rejecting it as being evil or shameful. And so rejecting a portion of, of that person's identity. And a, this study found that compared to LGBTQ young people who were not rejected or were only a little rejected by their parents, um, uh, people, um, who were like highly rejected, like the, the kinds of people that would be sent to conversion therapy to change a, a fundamental aspect about their nature were 8.4 times more likely to have attempted suicide, were 5.9 times more likely to report high levels of depression, were 3.4 times more likely to use illegal drugs, and 3.4 times mo more likely uh, to be at high risk of HIV and STDs. Like, Conversion therapy not only doesn't work, it has horrendously negative effects on these children. Children. Yeah. And that's and so, that's just and that's just like the impact of of like mild forms that can have this impact. Some types of conversion therapy in like attempt to divorce someone's sexual orientation or gender identity from their person by doing like violent role play reenacting potential past abuses um and like other things in, in including like shaming and nudity and all of these like horribly psychologically impairing actions in the name of converting someone from a homosexual person or a transgender person to a straight cis person yeah there was this lgb activist named uh vicky beeching um, who talked about her own experience with gay conversion therapy. Mm -hmm. And these experiences included uh, public exorcisms <laughs> in front of 4,000 people at a religious convention. Yeah. At the age of 16, by the way. Yeah. And in some cases, it included electric shocks yeah. and induced vomiting. Mm -hmm. That sounds the a lot UN like torture to me. Yeah, well, I'm glad you brought that up because the UN actually classifies gay conversion therapy as a form of torture. Yeah. So the suicide example that I gave earlier is completely appropriate. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, your intended goal is not going to happen. There's no actual evidence of this working. And... When people feel there's something wrong with them, when you are doing therapy that convinces people that there is something wrong with them, yeah. with their person, and no matter what they do, they can't get rid of it, 
Well, what do you think they're going to do? A lot of them are going to turn to suicide. So think of it this way. Anybody can have personal beliefs about gay conversion therapy. Absolutely. Like anybody can sit in their house thinking, oh, gee golly, I love gay conversion therapy. Anybody can do that. Anybody right? can go outside and talk about it out loud. You Any, get preachers yeah, anybody with can go outside and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, anybody can do that. And you know what? Uh, that's free speech. The yeah. government cannot come into your door and arrest you because you said that. And in fact, if the government ever does try to do that, like... I will defend the hell out of you. Yeah. I will say, no, that is, that is free speech. The ACLU you will the hell defend you. Want. you. <laughs> yeah, the ACLU will defend you. You know, it's the old adage, I, I don't believe in what you say, but I'll defend your right to say it till the very death. I, I truly believe that. But if you're an actual professional, yeah. like, there has to be a certain set of legal standards. Yeah. So, for example, anybody can believe that the earth is flat. Like, anybody can personally believe that the earth is flat and ha- and have no legal repercussions of that. But if a pilot believed that the earth was flat and thus didn't adjust for the curvature of the earth while he was flying mm-hmm. ended up crashing, well, of course we couldn't accept that. Yeah. Because it depends on him or her or they acknowledging reality mm-hmm. in order to actually do their job. To do their job. Yeah. So it's the same it's the same with therapists. Yeah. They have to acknowledge the studies the science and the reality in order to adequately do their jobs. And if they accept this bullshit premise of number one, that conversion therapy works and number two, that it's desirable, both of which are complete bullshit premises, then they are unfit to be a therapist. And I will even go a step further than that. And this, this, this might sound extreme, but I will even go a step further than that and say that if a parent willingly subjects their child to gay conversion therapy or or trans conversion therapy they're unfit to be a parent Mm -hmm. now that might sound extreme but you know what is what's extreme electroshock therapy yeah you know what's extreme induced vomiting yeah public exorcisms driving children to suicide is extreme that's extreme yeah i think i think you've hit on all of the key points of what's what's going on here like a side point is like the fact that this quote-unquote therapy is rejected by every major major psychological and 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 uh medical professional association and there's all this evidence that it doesn't work means that if you charge someone money for this service that is fraud so on top of on top of that it's wrong on top of all these things this should be a criminal act certainly um and then a couple a couple more things to your point kids are different if you want to if you want to offer some services to adults maybe that's one argument but the fact is that kids are a special class of people in the law because they don't have the same rights as adults because they're subject to the control of their parents or whatever whoever their adult legal guardian is um, and so the law affords them certain protections so that the state can make sure that that things blatantly contradictory to the child's best interest aren't executed on them. You know, for example, um, if like parents have rights to make decisions about their child's medical treatment, but if in the best interest of the child, um, they, they refuse to, to follow a recommended treatment course of action, you know, the doctor can, can go to the courts and say like, Hey, can you review this and make sure this is, 
you know, the best interest of the child. And importantly, religion is not a supported reason for refusing medical treatment. So like, even though free exercise of religion is in the constitution, it does not override the state's compelling interest in the well-being of the children in that state. And so it doesn't violate a parent's constitutional right to free exercise of religion. If you want to say, like, I don't want gay weddings in my church. Yeah. That's separation of church and state. That's fine. I don't care. If you want to say that I don't want... Hell, if you want to tell me that I can't bring my service dog into your church because, you know, dogs are against your religion, okay, that's fine. That's, that's how it should be, all right? That's legal. Now, I'm going to criticize you. I'm going to say that you're an asshole for doing that. Yeah. But I'm not going to try to go to the government and say, hey, you should... You should change the way that this this church operates. Mm-hmm. Of course, I'm not going to do that. I am in. I'm a very strong believer in religious freedom. I've even yeah. had arguments with liberal friends in which I've actually taken the side of no churches should be allowed to say that I can't bring my service dog in. Mm-hmm. Like they've actually defended my right, yeah, <laughs> uh, to, to bring a service dog into a church, and I've had arguments. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that same principle applies when it comes to LGBTQ. Yeah, but. When it comes to a practice that is clearly a violation of the rights of children, I mean, it, there's there's no defense. Yeah. I mean, the, that thing that I read earlier about how uh, 700,000 LGBTQ people have been subjected to the horrors of conversion therapy, that was according to a study by the UCLA Williams Institute. That same study estimated that 80,000 LGBTQ youth will experience this yeah. in the coming years. Yeah. And that's if, that's if we don't do anything to stop this. Yeah. And, this- and like the, the Trevor Project actually specifically lays out that this is often at the ex- insistence of well-intentioned but misinformed parents. Yeah. And look, you can cast these people, the people that subject their children to this, as misinformed or well-intentioned, and maybe they are. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good your intentions are. If you're driving your child to suicide, Mm -hmm. if you're torturing your child, if you're allowing your child to be tortured, that's endangerment. That is reckless endangerment. And I don't care how good your intentions are. Yeah. Your torture is not allowed. Yeah. And, and and the thing is, like, the Obama appointee on that federal court, Judge Barbara Martin, agreed with you. She dissented in this opinion and cited a compelling state interest in protecting children from a harmful therapeutic practice and wrote that uh, regulation of, quote, a harmful medical practice affecting vulnerable minors falls within the narrow range of permissibility where government can curtail speech. So she said specifically, even if this is a free speech claim, which, as we've argued, it doesn't seem like it should fall in those bounds. Even if it is, it is the type of speech that the state has a compelling state interest in curtailing and therefore uh, falls within that narrow range that can be it can be limited. Um, and that range does need to be narrow. It absolutely does. It needs to be narrow. Yeah, but it does but exist. But this 100%. Yeah, yeah. it does like, exist. And this 100% yeah. falls in that. Like perjury, an unconstitutionally protected form of speech. Fraud, 
an unconstitutionally protected form of speech. There are kinds of speech that aren't protected by the Constitution, which is which is a big point to me. Like, and it and it it's it's an it's a thing because these constitutional originalist arguments don't account for that crap. Like they just don't, they're unable to recognize those things. Like um, these arguments basically go, like if you can make an argument that any practice that these judges disagree with um, affects the constitution, they will use the sacred cow of like the um, untouchable like nature of the constitution in their eyes to like skip reasonable like reasonable legal reasoning um and and just say that whatever touches the constitution you know immediately is disavowed and dies like it's crazy it's it's absolutely crazy and like it's so clear that in cases like this using the constitution is a pawn for these people it's just it's just a total distraction and like some random loophole that they've been able to carve out that that ignorance about what the actual document and the structure of our law like enables um it's just and and you see this argument come up again and again in in the hobby lobby case in the case of kim davis like again and again they're pitting the constitution against um like all of these like these huge bodies of legal jurisprudence and the development of our law and like rather than taking a like a nuanced approach that actually takes the facts of the matter into account um and one worrying thing to me on this front is that at this point this this circuit the 11th circuit has banned um or has called the banning of, un, of uh, conversion therapy unconstitutional. While the Ninth and the third, third Circuits have both upheld the bans as being constitutional, which like great for the Ninth and Third Circuit, but the fact that the Eleventh Circuit has split the federal courts on this makes it more and more likely that one of these cases will make it up to the Supreme Court, which now has a 6-3 conservative majority. And I'm hesitant given given the number of originalists and textualists and um like arch conservatives on the court including thomas and alito who are outspoken in opposition to gay rights uh, and lgbtq rights um i really worry whether like these laws will end up standing if they make it to the supreme court And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat, asshat of, of the, the week. week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Michael, our asshat this week is someone that whose name I did not know exactly one week ago. <laughs> and in one week went from insane Trump lawyer to... Well, Just insane person. worked with us. <laughs> What are you talking about? She was never our lawyer. <laughs> Sydney Powell, yes. come on down. Yeah, welcome, Sydney Powell. This week, this week, it's a complete no-brainer yeah. in that uh, I, I'm not completely convinced that this woman has a brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. How could an ass or a hat have a brain? So, of course, why? <laughs> yes. If I only had a brain. <laughs> so, Sydney so. Powell was part of this ridiculous 
uh, press conference that was that was uh, put out by the uh, Trump's like team of you know elite team of lawyers, including Rudy Giuliani. Um, so elite doesn't apply. Um, and <laughs> she was pushing these ridiculous claims, some of which we've talked about, that the election was wholesale rigged by get ready for it uh hugo chavez who's dead and china (laughs) and brian kemp and and so that so that's the thing she she uh, she unfortunately violated the most important rule of of the trump presidency right club yeah uh, yeah of like being on the right wing which is never never cast a light on your own side (laughs) <laughs> and so in claiming that Brian Kemp and uh, and potential and other Republicans might be involved with this, um, she apparently really got under their skin. Yeah. And just to remind you who Brian Kemp is, he's the current governor of Georgia, mm-hmm. um, the guy who basically purged voter rolls uh, when he was secretary of state um, in his own election. Yeah. So basically he stole his own gubernatorial race from Stacey Abrams mm-hmm. in order to become governor in the first place. Yeah. So, I mean, in that regard, I guess, you know, Sidney Powell is, I mean, to be fair, if I were going to list people that might interfere with an election, <laughs> he would yeah. probably be I mean, somewhere on, close to the top, but on the wrong track, but the right train, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> and that's the thing. She is our asset because I guess in all of her craziness, she just stepped a little too far. She got a little, yeah. she flew a little too close to the sun, Icarus wise. Yeah. Tucker Carlson. Yeah. Ugh. Tucker Carlson condemned her. Tucker Carlson called her out. Like yeah. Tucker Carlson did this whole segment where he basically said, uh, we invited her on to, to bring her evidence. And we were, we would have given her like all day to speak all weekend to speak, you know, but like when asked for evidence, she didn't give us any evidence mm-hmm. and she got angry at us. Yeah. And like in that same segment, he was like, and like, we're fucking nuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was like, we've entertained, you know, UFO conspiracy theories on this show, you know, and that's not because we're crazy. It's because they totally exist. It's like, okay. So that guy, that guy, you were too crazy for that guy. Yeah, the, the guy who has been declared by an actual judge to legally be an unreliable source to the point where defamation suits don't actually apply to him because he's so unreliable. Mm-hmm. That guy thought you were like, your claims were too out there. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty amazing. I would say, I would say she should get a Dershowitz award, but I don't think her claims even like get yeah. into the realm of an argument. They it's even, just random yeah. bullet points about, Total BS, like made yeah. from whole cloth. Absolutely crazy. It's like Hugo Chavez, Brian Kemp, and China yeah. worked together to elect Joe Biden. Yeah. And anyway. somehow the least crazy part of that is that China helped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, anyway, congratulations to Sidney Powell for being our asshat of, of the, the week. week. All right, so for our last segment, um, we wanted to spend some time having a bit of a more theoretical conversation about cancel culture. Um, so, Nathan, I've got a bunch of thoughts on this particular topic. Did you have anywhere specific that you wanted to start? 
Well, first, I do want to go ahead and lay out an instance that I think most of the people in our audience can agree is good cancel culture and an instance that I think most people in our audience can agree is is bad in mm -hmm. uh, cancel culture. Yeah. So first off, let's let's try to define cancel culture. I think that's that would be because if we could just it's define really that, hard that would to make define. This, this whole segment worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. It's really hard to define because it seems to mean different things to different people. Yeah. Like in some cases, it's sort of a, you'll never work in this town again. Mm -hmm. In some cases, it's a, there's a large number of people that are not going to consume your content anymore. Yep. In some cases, it might be, I just don't like you now. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, there's, there's, and in some cases, it's the accusation of, you said something that I disagreed with. Yeah. Um, and I made a disagreement. So I'm being accused of canceling you because I disagreed with you. Yeah. To me, as I think about the examples I've seen, because it seems like to get to a good definition, all we can really do is draw together the threads of the examples that people think of as cancel culture. To me, it kind of divides along like one major dimension. And then one of those has like a, a sub segment. So one is just on, on the one side, actual ex like examples of people being canceled. Like yeah. um, people like losing their jobs or their shows or all these kinds of things for 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 things that they do or express. And there's a lot of examples under there which we can break out. Um, in that vein of people actually being canceled, it seems like you get canceled by organizations and you get canceled by individuals like consumers. And I think those are pretty different, pretty different examples and probably have different uh, like definitions of whether it's justified and yeah. then on the other side on the whole other side i think the second vein is not when people are canceled but actually the cultural phenomenon which may or may not actually exist i'm not really totally convinced but the cultural phenomenon of people finding views and perspectives that they disagree with to be emotionally intolerable like something that they just can't abide with and so they have to their vulnerability requires them or, or fragility, depending on how you, you kind of think about it, requires them to uh, not only reject the beliefs, but reject the people and like just rid themselves of, of any of that, of that, that presence in their mind, in their mind space. Yeah. I think those what are kind of the two main groups. Yeah. One of the important things that I think we do need to note is it is way more complicated than, yeah, Cancel culture good or cancel culture bad. Absolutely. And way more, complicated, way more complicated than cancel than culture is Democrats and not and, and or cancel oh, yeah. culture is Republicans. No, cancel culture is absolutely on both sides. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Republicans try to pretend that cancel culture is this big left wing thing is is laughable. Yeah. So let me let, let me go back to the two examples I was I was planning on giving. So an example of cancel culture that I think that even most Republicans today can look at and be like, yeah, totally justified. Yeah. Um the Montgomery bus boycott. Absolutely. Historically, that was cancel culture. The, you know, the, the black people in Montgomery, Alabama canceled the bus system. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, it led to desegregation in busing in Montgomery, Alabama. Yeah. Um, you know, these, the, the, the busing system did something horrifically racist, you know, in this case, um, throwing Rosa Parks in jail for refusing to give up her seat. Yep. And it led to a big boycott, which, I mean, that is cancel culture. Yeah. That is canceling. Like, you are, you are refusing to participate 
in an industry yeah. in order to protest a uh, a social injustice. Yeah. That is that's cancel culture. I think which is that exact example is one of the reasons why I think examples of things being canceled. I don't actually think that that is happening more now necessarily than later. I haven't yeah. I haven't done like a comprehensive study because I don't have the time or expertise to do that. But it doesn't seem to me like this is a new thing. Boycotts have existed forever. A strike is well, we see more culture. about it because <laughs> we see more about it because of social media. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and you see you more know, about I, it if you're worried more about it because social media and Google give you the information that you want to see. Yeah, and then another example of cancel culture that I want to give that I think at least most of the people listening can probably say, yeah, that's, that's stupid, that's wrong, would be Colin Kaepernick. <gasps> mm-hmm. Wait, but that's an example of right-wingers canceling someone who made a left-wing view. Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. That was cancel culture. Yeah. He, he expressed a political view mm-hmm. that people found offensive, and he got fired for it. Yeah. That is cancel culture, all right? Don't, don't, don't try to say that it's, this is just a thing on the left yeah. that, that, left, that leftists do. That was cancel culture. He lost his job for expressing a political view mm-hmm. that other people found offensive. So, and that's actually one thing that I do want to like, make a huge point to say, which is the fact that if you are a principled right-winger who is against cancel culture on the principle of we need to let people speak their mind so that we can have a free marketplace of ideas. But you, but you supported the firing of Colin Kaepernick. You're a charlatan. You're a shyster. Yeah. Like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not principled. Yeah. Yeah. I think that makes total sense. And I do want to get into, I I put together a little bit of a framework about like what kind of a, uh, a decision tree about like when, cancel culture may or may not be justified. But I did want to spend a little time talking about kind of the, th- the theory that kind of backs up all of this discussion, specifically around like the relationship between our, our societal interest in robust speech and communication and, and uh, diverse speech. And, but also like, um, on the other hand, like consequences of speech, because I think I think if there's anything we've learned from uh, some of the more recent anonymous phenomenon on the internet, it's that when there is zero consequence for uh, speech, our very worst societal instincts and worst societal inclinations just run rampant and and block yeah. the whole conversation. And and yeah. again, I don't I think when we when when someone says something like a consequence for speech, we think of things like putting someone in jail or like some some government action that's a consequence. Not at all. Not at all. Speech um consequences for speech are all over the place. What 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 prevents an intellectual professional from lying outright? The fact that in giving that speech, in presenting this this totally false claim, it will be discovered that it is false, sunlight will be the best medicine, the truth will prevail in this robust economy of speech, and he will be discredited, and, and the consequence will be the fact that no one will listen to him anymore because he's made this false claim. That's a, that is how our speech remains robust. 
That is how our speech remains uh, productive and and contributing to um, this conversation. So it's it's tough to thread this needle between we want there to be consequences for speech because we don't want idiots and charlatans and liars holding the microphone all the time. But I I think you're right that it that in having consequences be so severe that people that it hampers the conversation or has a quote chilling effect is is uh, could be like really negative and hurtful and and it's yeah. it's hard for me to figure out exactly where to draw that line. Yeah. And and I have definitely seen instances on the left of of cancel culture being used to try to cancel people for either misunderstandings or even yeah. just someone set makes a statement that's unintentionally ignorant and people assume, oh, they must be a terrible person who doesn't care. Yeah. Like, I actually, I have seen people make arguments of um, a person um, makes a, a statement in favor of feminism that is not completely inclusive of non-binary people. And look, we do need to be inclusive of non-binary Absolutely, people, yeah. to be clear. Yeah. But the solution to that is to educate somebody. Like, if someone is being willfully malicious towards... Sure. Uh, towards trans people, towards non-binary people. That's that's certainly one thing. And, you know, you should call that out. You should use your free speech in order to criticize that. Absolutely. But if someone makes a statement that is ignorant, but clearly well-intentioned, like, I'm not saying that you have no right to get annoyed. You know, of course you have a right to get annoyed. I'm not saying that you have no right to get frustrated. I, in fact, I... I I'm, I'm not even saying that you have no right to in some way shame that person. Of course you do. Yeah. But cancellation, the idea of, well, you said that, therefore I'm never going to listen to you again. Mm -hmm. That's just not productive. Yeah. And, and, and look, you might hear me say that and think, well, Nathan, you're, you're a white dude. Like you're, you're, you're a white dude. Yeah. Um, what gives you the right to, to tell people like, how they can and can't cancel someone. And that that's a fair point, totally. but I would like to point out one thing. Um, I am on the autism spectrum, and there actually has been a case in which a similar thing happened in which a celebrity said something about autistic people, and I actually did a video on my YouTube channel for autism advocacy in which I called them out, yeah. but I also made it clear, like, I want them to be educated. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure we might end up doing a segment about this at one point, but uh, for those of you that don't know a lot about um, a lot of the inner workings of the autism advocacy community. Um, a lot of us which, do which not maybe like a autism lot of speaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be quite a few of you actually. Uh, but a, a lot of autistics, most autistic activists do not like autism speaks. Yeah. Um, they had a long history of uh, embracing the idea of a, a cure for autism, which a lot of autistics found like extremely offensive, offensive because like autism is a part of who we are. Yeah. Like it's a part of our minds. And um, like in some ways we consider ourselves, you know, benefited from being autistic. Yeah. And for the longest time, Autism Speaks didn't have any people who are actually autistic on their board of directors. Now, eventually uh, they did put two on there. That was two out of 25 people. So, you know, big deal. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, went from autism doesn't speak to autism speaks very quietly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. So, so yeah, a lot of autistics, you know, if you've ever seen the hashtag actually autistic, um, a lot of autistics use that to sort of fight against the idea of our voices being stolen by, you know, 
by Autism Speaks. Yeah. So uh, William Shatner, who is an actor that I, I, I like, I enjoy, I respect. I, I, I like Star Trek. Uh, you know, I like some of the other stuff he's been in. Um, and he actually made this tweet a while back in which he basically called out the hashtag actually autistic activists. Um, and he, you know, he defended Autism Speaks, making a bunch of kind of stupid points about how like, oh, you know, it, they're... They're trying. You should be. You should be grateful because you know you're just you're just alienating people, and um, you know you're like you're, you're saying uh, you're always saying, oh well, they they don't represent us. It's like oh, but they they have two two autistics on their board of directors now. Like you know that's something you should be grateful for. And it was it was really condescending. It was really stupid. And I saw it, and like yeah, I was offended by it. I was pissed off about it. But and 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 I made a video laying out why it was bullshit. And I, and I made a video addressing the actual points. But what I did not do is say, this is a garbage human being mm -hmm. who is irredeemable and he should never work in this town again. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it, it feels unfair that those of us who actually have some type of marginalized identity yeah. have to do that. Like, it, 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 it is, is unfair. unfair. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend it's not. But it's more productive. It's more effective. And like you don't alienate your natural ally in yeah. that way. Let me know if this summarizes that point or not, but like, it seems like the right solution to ignorance in that, in that kind of example is knowledge rather than silence. Yeah. Uh, 100%. And, and, and one major caveat is like, if, if if you're burnt out and exhausted and like this is not something you can emotionally handle don't yeah you yeah. know you like fair you, point. you're not alone um absolutely uh but i think yeah the the challenge is that we 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 want to amplify good arguments we want to amplify truth and reason and fact um but like there are cases like and and it's easy it's easy to say that there's no downside to shutting out really evil and horrible arguments right like yeah. like like telling racists to fucking shut up <laughs> and not having yeah. racists in our government is obviously a good thing we don't want to do yeah. we don't want to have that it's a clearly a a, a bad example like a an example of of irredeemable speech but there yeah. are plenty of examples of times when a consensus view was wrong. And, and for, I mean, a lot of those examples are the other side of the coin of some of these same issues. So the consensus view that like, uh, that believed in phrenology, which was like an, a scientific, uh, a, a pseudoscience argument for the inferiority of, of African Americans. And it was like, yeah, if that consensus had been allowed to stand without, with the absence of, of, of robust speech and investigation and advocacy, like then we would be in a very different position, a much worse position than we are today. Um, so, you know, I think on this, on this show, we really try to push for the truth rather than the belief. Yeah. And so, yeah, like it, but it is a hard, uh, a hard, um, line to thread. So I'd say like personally, I think it makes sense for each person to don't do it for the show of it. Do it yeah. for your, like 
do it for the argument, do it for uh, the the cause or the activism. Don't do it for the show, and but make sure to protect yourself. That seems like the that seems like a reasonable yeah. personal personal approach. Yeah. So like I, I do want to make one thing clear. There were a lot of people in the example that I gave yeah. uh, about William Shatner. There were a lot of you know my fellow autism advocates that I was seeing like on social media who are basically saying, screw this guy, he's a garbage human being. Yeah. And that's not my approach, but I don't fault them for that. Sure. Because they're frustrated. Yeah. I mean, we're frustrated. I'm frustrated. I, I was tempted to do something like that. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you just gotta, like sometimes you just gotta express yourself. Sometimes you just gotta like say what's on your mind in a really frustrating world that is super unequal. Yeah. And if you experience that, if you experience that inequality based on some type of marginalized identity, I don't necessarily think that you should be held at fault for that desire to, to cancel somebody in your mind because you don't want to hear assaults on your identity. Yeah. seems reasonable to me you know, on the other side of it, of course, though, there does need to be activists as well yeah. who like, who do still call it out. Yeah. Cause unfortunately when it comes to, when it comes to trying to educate people that do not occupy that marginalized identity, mm -hmm. like you really do have to be, um, in, in a lot of cases you do have to be patient with them yeah. and it sucks. Yeah. But, and it takes emotional you know, I, it, strength. Yeah. And, and, and it, it takes emotional strength. And there are so many moral arguments for why you shouldn't have to do absolutely. that. Absolutely. But if you don't do it, if no one does it, yeah. then the arguments don't get out there and people's minds don't change. Yeah. So cancel culture is a very complicated issue. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of problems that can be associated with it. And in some cases, it does affect a free marketplace of ideas. Mm -hmm. But in some ways, it is also an important coping mechanism for people that are constantly having who they are attacked by, you know, at best people that are ignorant and at worst people that are truly malicious. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think it's short-sighted to just you know, take away and destroy and say like, this is, this is never something that should happen again. And at the same time, cancel culture can also be used for instances of achieving true social activism. Absolutely. It can be used as holding people accountable socially. Yeah. I mean, and, and in some cases criminally. Yeah. I mean, I think that most people can agree that the cancellation of people like Kevin Spacey or Bill Cosby is completely justified. Mm -hmm. Like if you commit a crime, I don't want you working on my movie set. Yeah. If you're, if you're a sexual predator, I don't want you working on my movie set. Yeah, absolutely. Screw you. Absolutely. I'd say that's a key distinction. Like I'd say like considering what someone is alleged to have done is really important in this. There's certainly a difference between canceling someone quote unquote, canceling someone because they, uh, think that trickle-down economics exists and someone yeah. that, you know, is a, like, substantiated sexual predator. Like, yeah. 
unfortunately, sometimes, often in those cases, they're outside of the official reach of the law. But that doesn't mean that you can't, as as a group of people, we can't like, with sufficient evidence, um, can uh, uh, make sure that some form of justice is done. Um, I'd say that there's also another second thing within that as well, which is, um, I think there's a difference between like individuals doing the canceling, like when you and I don't shop at, you know, a retailer or something because they use slave labor. Like that is a very reasonable thing to attempt to cancel and using your dollar votes to import into, to put your voice into the marketplace is a really important function of the economy. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a little bit trickier when it's an organization that is, yeah, that is considering whether to like, quote unquote, like cancel, um, someone. And I think, but I think even that is not quite as tricky as it, as it may seem. For example, like, you know, I, I would encourage, like, if anyone's a leader of an organization, like, if the person is doing something or saying something that is contrary to um, the, uh, like, organization's or to like that person's function, like if they literally can't do their job correctly because of what they believe or like what they're saying and, and doing like, that's obviously a problem. They don't deserve to have that job if they can't do it right. For example, you know, Kim Davis is a prime example. Like she wasn't Mm -hmm. doing her job when she refused to give people marriage license. So she should be fired. Done. Yeah. Uh, similar or, or therapists that yes. do uh, gay conversion therapy. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Those people like, absolutely. They should be removed from their positions. Similar along the same lines is if the person's actions or views are like thwarting the goals of the organization, it probably doesn't make sense for that organization to have that person yeah. involved. Like, uh, what's an example of this? Um, I mean, if a person was working for the human rights campaign, yes, while also pushing for conversion therapy, I mean, yeah, they probably you know. <laughs> you, it's probably reasonably a reasonable assertion that they're not doing their job, um, yeah, the way that they or, should. Or, or if uh, you know, say somebody was appointed to the Department of Energy <laughs> um, after like you know having uh, like four years prior saying that the Department of Energy shouldn't exist, you know. Was that uh, that was Rick Perry? Cough, cough, right? Rick Perry, cough, cough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <Rick laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, now this it's not totally easy in these cases though, because in the NFL case, like if if their viewers had tried to boycott the NFL because of Colin Kaepernick's actions, it would be his actions because of the public backlash would be thwarting that organization's goals. So. Even this is not, we're not out of the realm of murky water. It's a complicated issue. But ultimately, like yeah. having your players be able to be human beings instead of human body or like human sandbags or whatever, like that seems like it's in line with an organization's goals. So. So now we will end our episode on a high note. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Well, my highlight this week is the fact that I am in the new house. I am finally in the new house. 
Uh, viewers can't see that, um, <laughs> or listeners, not viewers. <laughs> um, uh, but I am finally moved into the new house. There's still some more things to uh, to unpack, to uh, get situated. But for the most part, we're settling in. It's starting to feel like home. Um, I'm making myself uh, omelets every morning, <laughs> um, which that might sound yeah, really that, arbitrary. Is that but an aspect of a new house? <laughs> It's it's an aspect of me having my own kitchen. Ah, that's big. Or at least you know, Jess and me having oh, our man, own I kitchen. I couldn't imagine stepping away from my own kitchen. Oof. Yeah. Um so so yeah. I, I, I'm really excited about this. And also, uh, you know, to to you, Michael, and to our viewers, uh happy socially distanced Thanksgiving. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah, um that's awesome, Nathan. Congratulations on moving into the new place. That's amazing. What about you, Mike's? So for me, um, I think I, I have to say like, so the Taylor's live stream concert that I talked about for two weeks <laughs> happened this past Friday and yeah. it was like one of the most incredible experiences ever. It was so awesome and beautiful and amazing to watch him perform. He's such a talented performer. I was blown away. Um, I was literally clapping in between songs, even though it was just me and Bree sitting on the couch watching the TV. <laughs> I couldn't yeah. help but clap. Uh, it was just amazing. Yeah. Um, it's recorded, right? I wasn't able to watch it on Friday because we were carrying stuff up three flights of stairs. Uh, but I would, I, I do want to want to watch that when I get a chance. Yes, it is recorded. It is crowdcast.io.n-evening-with-taylor-bloom. So if you look that up, you can you can watch the whole concert, um, and yeah, I highly recommend it. It would be a wonderful evening. So, with that, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next time.